It's Wednesday, May 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Violent clashes have erupted in Venezuela as the opposition leader and self-declared interim president, Juan Guaido, urged the people and military to take to the streets and rise up against President Nicolas Maduro. Venezuela is currently caught in a huge political and humanitarian crisis, which has led to these two men claiming to be president. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, joins us to break down all the fighting in Venezuela. Next, President Trump has issued a memo for his departments to tighten up asylum rules for migrants. The memo instructs DHS and DOJ to develop new rules to bar certain asylum seekers from getting work authorization, impose fees on applications, and speed up immigration court decisions. Daniel Lippmann, reporter for Politico, joins us to break down the president's memo. Finally, men are notoriously bad patients. Compared to women, they avoid going to the doctor, skip more recommended screenings, and practice riskier behavior. This is leading the healthcare industry to push for men to get the care they need. In order to do this, healthcare providers are putting urologists in charge for broader concerns about men's health. Laura Landro, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how to get men to go to the doctor. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is clearly not a coup. We recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. And just as it's not a coup when the president of the United States gives an order to the Department of Defense, it's not a coup for Juan Guaido to try and take command of the Venezuelan military. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. We're going to be talking about Venezuela and the uprising that is happening there. The Venezuelan National Assembly President Juan Guaido has taken to the streets and called on the military and people to rise up and help topple President Nicolas Maduro. He says that he now has support from the military. It's unclear how much of the military actually supports Juan Guaido. Why is Venezuela going through this right now? Why are there two men claiming to be president there? Last year, Nicolas Maduro claimed to have won an election that was really rigged in his favor, and that mobilized the opposition in Venezuela. There's a very severe economic crisis there. Maduro is widely viewed as both corrupt and fairly incompetent in terms of the way he's led the country. And so you had Juan Guaido, who's the elected leader of the National Assembly in Venezuela, declare himself to be the acting president, which under the Constitution he would be if there was no president in office. They say Maduro's not a legitimate president, and so Guaido steps in. You, you then have the U.S. and now over 50 other countries recognize Guaido as a legitimate president and not Maduro. And that sets up this power struggle that we've seen for the last three months now where you have two men claiming to be president. You have Guaido trying to basically change the equation because at the, at the moment, Maduro is still in the presidential palace. He still commands the military. He still is in the seat of government. And Guaido is trying to do what he can to really change the equation and make Maduro step aside. So today was the most aggressive move that he's made yet, which is to really call for a coup. I mean, they say it's not a coup because Maduro is not legitimate, but call it what you want. What, what we're really seeing is an opposition leader calling for a coup, some members of the military on side, a lot of the military still seeming to be with Maduro, and then you see clashes between protesters and troops. So it's a, it's a really chaotic situation in Venezuela, but one that the U.S. is supporting. They've supported Guaido in this call for Maduro to be toppled. Maduro's hold on the power there in Venezuela really seems to stem from control of the military. Guaido has said that now he has some of the military support. But just from reports, there's not been a big 
major figure from the military that's come out to support him. He sent out a video and he was standing in front of a military base with a few people around, but it still seems unless the military completely abandons Maduro, this is just going to be an ongoing struggle. You did have an uprising of sorts, as you mentioned, at the base near which Guaido spoke. You had a certain number of members of the military change sides and join the protesters. So, you know, a very compelling scene there in Caracas. But as you mentioned, most of the military hasn't defected. And so one thing that National Security Advisor John Bolton just did outside the White House was to call senior members of the Venezuelan regime, including the defense minister, to call them out by name to basically say they've been wavering and and considering abandoning Maduro and saying you need to do it today. It is a situation where both Guaido has now put really all his cards on the table. I mean, he's he's now calling for a coup. He has said that today is the day. You have the U.S. backing that up. But if most of the military continues to stay in the barracks and continues to support Maduro, or at least not to turn on Maduro, you do have a very messy situation where both the opposition and the United States have said this needs to happen, and it just hasn't happened yet. There's clashes going on in Caracas right now. I saw a video earlier of military vehicles running into a crowd of protesters. Protesters are mobilizing all over the place. Do we have a sense of where the people at large, where they are with their support? Do they support Guaido or do they support Maduro in this? So there is still a core of support for the Socialist Party in Venezuela, but it's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as this economic crisis has gone on. I've spoken to a number of people, both who've been in Venezuela recently and observers of the situation who say people don't have enough to eat. They don't have access to good medical care. Their life savings are virtually worth nothing at the moment. Now, Maduro would say that's because the U.S. is sanctioning us and is determined to remove me from power. But if you are a citizen of Venezuela, the reasons for which you would support Nicolas Maduro have really dwindled over time. So we haven't seen any good polling on where the people stand, but reports from on the ground suggest that a lot of the population just wants this crisis to end and they associate Maduro with the crisis. So there's certainly a lot of popular support on the streets for Guaido. He's drawing massive crowds, tens of thousands of people when he travels around and speaks. And yet the people who really ensure Maduro's power are still there and haven't changed sides. So that's why we've seen this sort of deadlocked situation. There's a lot of other countries that are weighing in as well. I know Russia was one of them that are supporting Maduro, what kind of skin in the game do they have there? Probably the most dramatic thing that we saw in terms of other powers besides the United States during this three-month power struggle was Russia actually sending troops to Venezuela. It was a small number of troops, but it was a symbolic step to show that they're all in. Cuba has long been involved in Venezuela. They are deeply integrated into the security apparatus and tied directly to the socialist government that's in power in Venezuela. And China is another wild card here where Venezuela owes China a ton of money. China is obviously a communist-run country, so there's an an ideological alliance there, but they haven't been quite as forceful as Russia in terms of condemning what the U.S. is doing and in terms of throwing their weight behind Maduro. But they're an interesting wild card there, and they certainly have some skin in the game as well. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Let's <laughs> go.
Simply put, the system is full and we are well beyond our capacity. With regard to border security, as you're all aware, we're in the midst of an ongoing security and humanitarian crisis at our southwest border. Joining us now is Daniel Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. We're going to be talking about some changes that might be coming to immigration and the asylum process. More than 100,000 migrants crossed the U.S.-Mexico border last month. It's the highest level in more than a decade. About 60% of those were Central American parents traveling with their children who are seeking asylum. These big numbers have just overwhelmed the ability of the government to handle all of them and hold them in custody and process them quickly. The president has been frustrated with the caravans coming and just this whole process in general. So he sent out a memo to toughen the path to asylum, to limit work authorizations, impose a possible application fee to claim asylum, and hopefully also speed up some of the court decisions. What did this memo say? This is all an effort to make it harder for people from around the world to come to the U.S., if they are claiming political distress that they are getting persecuted or human rights concerns in their country or their political distance or in any of the above. This is one of Stephen Miller's pet peeves in that he wants to make it much harder for immigrants and asylum seekers to come to the U.S. and seek legal status. Who was this memo sent to? Because this isn't something that's going to go into effect right away. He sent it off to a few departments to work on something. DHS is the primary agency that carries this out. They are on the front lines of immigration policy in this country. And DHS is without a permanent leader. We haven't had a new secretary named. There's some expectation it might be Kevin McAleenan, who has been a DHS official in some of the component agencies dealing with the border. This is after Kirsten Nielsen was fired and basically thrown out of office because Trump did not like her anymore and her policies. And then we saw a series of stories placed afterwards that maybe had some of Nielsen's fingerprints showing that Trump did not want to hear about election security upgrades and that Stephen Miller first tried to order the deportation of some individual immigrants who were detained. According to the memo, he's ordering these departments to take action and hopefully get something in place within 90 days. Is this something that they can do just within their departments, change these rules? Do they have to go through Congress? I'm sure some of this will go to the courts once they change things, but is this just changes they can do within the departments themselves? Usually under any administration you have, government is able to get rules into place, but then they get quickly challenged and then it's up to the courts to decide whether they will go forward with them and rule them legal or illegal. And so the ACLUs of the world are about to challenge them once they publish the Federal Register. And so Trump and Stephen Miller have wanted to speed up the rules on immigration policies for a long time, where it was taking a while for DHS to issue new regulations on tightening immigrants. One of the things from the memo said that they wanted to impose an application fee to people seeking asylum. I mean, that's going to be tough for anybody coming over their poor already. They're exhausting all their resources on the trip getting over to the border. An application fee might be really hard for some of the migrants to pay. One of the other things is that they have to speed up the process to get through people through the system to about 180 days. And that's going to be tough in and of itself. There's 850,000 cases in the immigration courts right now that they're all backlogged. 
and there's only about 400 judges to handle them. That 180 days is going to be really hard to speed up. This is something that's kind of impossible for them to handle. They'd have to hire many more immigration judges, but it doesn't seem like that's actually going to take place. And so you have a scenario where if they're going to try to force this to be speeded up, you don't want to have judges that are existing that are already there, just like hear cases in two minutes and then decide a person's life based on that. And so this is something that is going to bedevil them for the rest of their administration. Every past recent presidency has dealt with these issues before, and so this is not new for Trump. But clearly he doesn't know all the facts about how long this type of stuff takes. And that leads us to the next thing. The White House is expected to soon ask Congress for billions of dollars in emergency funding to deal with the humanitarian crisis at the border. House Democrats are not going to like that very much. What kind of money is he seeking? This is all in addition to the national emergency at the border. What kind of number is he looking for for this additional money that they're going to be requesting? So they haven't issued this request formally, but all we know that is that it's billions of dollars that's under discussion. That's to deal with the humanitarian crisis at the border. And it's been under review at the White House for about a month, and the request could come as soon as this week, although the timing is unclear. But you know, we should remember that the supplemental spending request is likely to come into kind of a buzzsaw of opposition from House Democrats who are still concerned about President Trump's decision to declare a national emergency and divert Pentagon funds to his border project, which which is unpopular with a number of Republicans as well because they have their pet Pentagon projects that they don't want it to cut into. Daniel Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are a ticking time bomb. The fact that you can't perform sexually may be a sign that you're also going to have a heart attack. Joining us now is Laura Landro, former assistant managing editor to The Wall Street Journal and author of Survivor, Taking Control of Your Fight Against Cancer. We're going to be talking about men and the doctor. Men are notoriously bad patients. They avoid going to the doctor. They skip more recommended screenings. They practice riskier behavior. They die sooner, five, about five years sooner than women do. Right now, a lot of healthcare providers are looking for ways to turn that around. And there's a lot of different things that they're exploring. Key among them is putting the urologist in charge of really quarterbacking the whole process, saying, hey, you're coming in for something specific here, but let's explore other avenues of your health. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, I think the urology department is actually the one doctor that many men will go to when they have problems that are insurmountable to them and which really affect the things they care about. So sexual dysfunction, ED, erectile dysfunction, and prostate problems. You know, you have to go to the bathroom all the time. You've seen those drugs advertised to prevent BPH, which is benign prostate hyperplasia, prevents you from not having to run to the bathroom all the time. And those are the things that will drive men to the urologist. So the idea is once they get into a urologist, the urologist can start to talk to them about these other health concerns that either are related or symptoms of or going to cause problems later that you're just beginning to see in those urological concerns. Yeah, and it's tough to really get a a guy to talk about health problems. Just a quick story to kind of illustrate guys not going to the doctor. I have a family member who was experiencing some vertigo type symptoms, was losing balance, getting nauseous and vomiting. 
and he just refused to go to the doctor, went so far as to call a family friend who was a nurse to come check him out and flush out his ear, you know, maybe hopefully get rid of some of the vertigo symptoms. Did all of that rather than go to the doctor and get himself checked out. There's this kind of complaining could be a sign of weakness, thought process that goes behind men. So it's tough to get them to come to the doctor. A lot of times they like talking about these hero problems, like I I broke my arm bench pressing 200 pounds or something, instead of really trying to take care of themselves and doing a lot of the preventative work, which could help them in the long run. Right. And I think, you know, there's a lot of really interesting sociologists that actually study these phenomenon. The idea also that goes back to youth male sports. Now you've got men and women both doing a lot of sports now, but the studies have actually shown that men are more likely to be the ones who are either self-imposed or by their own coaches to play through injury, to man up, tough it out. If you have a problem that's hurt you, you can play through it. And I think that's one of the problems that later in life says, well, I can play through this symptom. I can, you know, still go to work and do everything I have to do. I'll tough it up. I'll man up. I'll, I'll, I won't, you know, complain about this because it would be unmanly. Healthcare providers are trying to get the urologist more involved and say, you know, you're coming in for some of these things. And then from there, let's look to other aspects of your health. You can make all of your appointments here in one place rather than having to go to a bunch of different specialists. But as you mentioned, you have to hit them where they're really keen on, you know, as you said, erectile dysfunction. But that's also a big uh, sign of other health problems. If a man is experiencing that kind of dysfunction, it could be linked directly to heart disease. There's high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, depression. All this stuff can be linked just by seeing that in the first place. There are actually studies that show that ED can predict heart disease symptoms within five years. So in other words, you are a ticking time bomb. The fact that you can't perform sexually may be a sign that you're also going to have a heart attack. And I think one of the things you're finding is that urologists are starting to be a lot more proactive in that way. You know, okay, you came in for this. Let's talk about these other things. And sometimes they'll try to put the fear of God in them a little bit. You know, yeah, obesity is a problem. A lot of men are overweight and, you know, they're, they're having dysfunction problems because they're overweight. Well, the overweight also is linked to diabetes and high blood pressure. A lot of these things are linked to other things that are really bad for you and bad for your longevity. And I think, you know, once you start hitting all the right issues, you can kind of design a health program for men, you know, lose weight. Sometimes the ED guys will send them next door to the bariatric surgeon. Maybe weight loss surgery is the way you're going to fix this. You know, that's a more popular plan now. Healthcare providers are also designing these health centers with men in mind. <laughs> you got to make the guys feel comfortable, I guess. Some right, of them even right. work. You got to get that big screen TV, right? Yeah, there's a design nonprofit, Man Cave Health, which is helping with yeah. some of these places. As long as they can feel comfortable in a waiting room, maybe they'll stick around and, and get all the care that they need. Once you get the comfort level in there, it's more male friendly and it's going to encourage them to seek some of the preventive care and also to take better care of themselves, period. There's a few other ways that healthcare providers are looking to get men to go to the doctor more regularly. But the last one that I wanted to bring up was the rise of telemedicine. And increasingly, places are offering these services to men. So maybe it is embarrassing. Maybe you don't want to get out there or something, but you can at least see a doctor over a screen and try to begin to get some help there as well. Anybody who has a, a major health plan nowadays, you'll start, you'll get that card in the mail that says, We now have Teladoc available. I I even have it. And I said, really? If I have a rash in the middle of the night or if I feel like I've got strep throat or if there's something that could be easily diagnosed, that's one thing. Obviously, they can't help with everything. But the idea, I think, for a lot of men that they could just not have to go into an office. And the other idea that we uh, talk about 
in the story is that there is these asynchronous consults. In other words, the idea that this doesn't have to be in real time. I don't even have to see a doctor or talk to one, but I can write down, I can send online my symptoms, I can ask questions. A clinician can review it, and they can come up with a plan. They can come up with something. Uh, Even if it is an erectile dysfunction issue and they're worried that they have heart disease symptoms or high blood pressure, or they could be at risk because of their age or weight, they can say to them, I can't prescribe this to you online, but here's a place you can go and discreetly get evaluated. Bottom line, men, stop fooling around and get to the doctor. Laura Landro, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>